0: I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty gritty, so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is...
1: The strange life of
0: Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the Fairy hunter? Arguably one of the most famous writers of all time, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle lived anything but a normal life. Not only was he a doctor, surgeon, and essayist, but he also created Sherlock Holmes. He also was an obsessive paranormal investigator. you think he wore one of those double-billed hats when he sat down to write how dare
1: you dave the the deer hunter hat wasn't introduced into the lore until the 1939 basil rothbone films they were never in the novels or the short stories
0: <laughs> sir arthur conan doyle is a beloved writer so much so that his fictional creation has an entire cottage industry that sprung up around him there are holmes walking tours a new movie every year practically and a whole field of study dedicated to deconstructing the mechanisms at play in Doyle's elaborately plotted mysteries. However, the truly fascinating aspect of Doyle is the man behind the writing, the bizarre and broken person, the frail lost little boy looking for answers in the most unusual places something that more than a few of his readers could probably relate to. Born in 1859, Sir Arthur Ignatius Conan Doyle was a writer, professor, and would-be scientist, and, spoilers, eventual fairy hunter. He was most widely known around the world as the creator of Sherlock Holmes, first appearing in 1887's A Study in Scarlet. The Holmes character would eventually appear in four novels. 56 short stories, and an untold number of unsanctioned fan stories, films, TV shows, and video games. Anybody remember Sherlock Holmes in the 22nd century? As a poor child growing up, Conan Doyle was sent to England from his native Scotland by a pair of wealthy uncles. He was sent to an all-boys school and eventually went to college at Stonyhurst College. From 1876 to 1881, he studied medicine at the University of Edinburgh Medical School. While there, he began writing short stories in his free time. He submitted a short story called The Haunted Grange of Gorsthorpe" to Blackwoods Magazine, but was rejected. His first published piece was titled Mystery of Sasa Valley. Sasasa? Sasasa? Sasa- Valley? Sasasa? S-sasa-Sasa-Sasa. Sasasa Valley? Sasasa? Sasasa? Sasasa?
1: It's like a weird laugh. Sasasa?
0: You think that's how Arthur Conan Doyle actually laughed in real life?
1: By Jove, good boy! I've just had the funniest idea for a laugh about.
0: His first published piece was titled Mystery of Sas Valley, set in South Africa and printed in Chambers Edinburgh Journal in September of 1879. After graduating with a bachelor's of medicine and a master's in surgery, he served as a sh- he served as a ship's surgeon on the SS <laughs>
1: <laughs> He served as a ship's surgeon. He served as a ship's surgeon. He served as a ship's surgeon. He serves as a ship surgeon.
0: He serves as a su- surgeon. He serves as a su- surgeon. He he served as a ship's surgeon on the (laughs) SS Mayumba. (laughs) That's that's hard to say, man. He serves as a ship's surgeon. I've literally... It's me, Woodrow Wilson. Do you want to serve as a ship's surgeon with a couple of long breads? I don't think I've ever consumed an alcoholic beverage, and I think I've seen you consume an alcoholic beverage maybe once. And... I love that he served as a ship's surgeon, just turned both of us into alcoholics. (laughs) He served served as a ship's surgeon on the SS... Mayumba in 1881 this is pretty crazy to me like I didn't I knew that he had some sort of scientific background but I didn't know that he was like a full-on straight-up doctor did you I
1: don't uh, yeah I did in general I knew that he I knew that he was a doctor but yeah I, I didn't know this I didn't know that he was a surgeon on it I didn't know he served as a ship surgeon I knew he was a doctor though but yeah I didn't know that he was like fucking cutting out people's appendixes on a ship (laughs)
0: <laughs> on the uss mayumba in 1881 yeah i'm I, it, it makes a lot of sense though
1: but isn't that just isn't that just like how you what you the rite of passage or the pipeline that you had to go through to be like a an author in the 1800s people just hadn't figured out yet that you could just make up stuff so everybody just had to be like oh i uh i serve her majesty's royal navy in my adventures i've fought many a rapscallion and so i've just written a book that's loosely based on my life where it's essentially me, but like in all the parts where I didn't do cool stuff, I just made myself do cool
0: stuff. I mean, that's what Melville did, right?
1: Yeah. Or fucking Fleming or any of these guys.
0: I mean, Fleming is way later though, right? Dr. No comes out in 58. Yeah.
1: Jules Verne as well. Jules Verne. Yeah. Yeah. It wouldn't, it, it would take, uh, it took many decades to get to the point of people like us, Who have literally done nothing but then we write about like even crazier shit than they did
0: yeah 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 i kind of love that idea though that because the centralized levers of power were so encircled with middlemen at this point in time you couldn't just print on demand your memoir to show your family or whatever you had to go be a merchant marine you had to go out and live these lives where it's, yeah, I know you wanna be a writer, but you shouldn't waste your time writing right now. Go out and live, and then when you're like 45, maybe start trying to figure out how to use a typewriter.
1: Listen to me, old boy. I did not serve as a ship surgeon for you to tell me that I cannot publish my works. I will see my, my, my masterpieces in your magazine. I served as a ship surgeon, and this is
0: my destiny. Do you know how hard it is to say I served as a ship surgeon, let alone to be a ship surgeon?
1: Imagine somebody who sounds like this actually serving as a ship
0: surgeon. Many people died. Look at my hand right now. Look at my hand right now. It's not even it's not even quaking because I served as a sip surgeon. You see this? I served as a sip surgeon. Which now you could tell my hand isn't moving at all right now.
1: A scalpel in this hand has the poetry of a gentle lover.
0: Sir, we're going to have to ask you to leave.
1: Do you know if there's a CVS nearby?
0: He's he's not only a, sip, a ship's surgeon, but he's a time traveler. <laughs> Arthur Conan Doyle's just like, uh, do you know if I could find like a Buffalo Wild Wings around here, my good man?
1: The silent part of my joke that I didn't mention was that he was in a Walgreens. So he was he was just looking for a different, the, he was looking for the competitor.
0: No, but really, I'm just trying to get some tater tots and wings. You don't serve tater tots and buffalo wild wings? They did in 1881?
1: (laughs) It was even funnier because I, as soon as I said it, I knew you were going to say that. It was like (laughs) one of those jokes where it's even funnier because you anticipate
0: it. I just love the idea of Arthur Conan Doyle going into Buffalo Wild Wings and ordering tater tots, and then sitting down at one of those like high tables with the big stools by himself, and like eating tater tots, and then somebody coming over and be like, "Oh my God, are you the author of <laughs> fucking Sherlock Holmes?" And he's like, "Go away, I'm eating tater tots." And he's got like tater tots in his giant weird 1800s steampunk mustache, and
1: then the guy's like, "Oh, you don't have to be so testy about it. I'm just a fan." He's like, "You know what?" I don't know you anything. And he gets up and he just starts boxing him and they get in this huge fight and they just destroy the entire thing and they get kicked. They get thrown out on their asses. And then the manager's like, you know what? We're not serving tater tots anymore. Take them off the menu forevermore. We will no
0: longer serve tater tots at Buffalo Wild Wings. Buffalo Wild Wings stopped serving tater tots in 1882. (laughs) Because of a freak brawl
1: that happened between... Arthur Conan Doyle and one of his
0: fans. (laughs) I love this idea so much. (laughs) And that's like the secret origin for all of the crazy buck wild shit we're going to talk about in this episode. Because it's really bizarre that Sherlock Holmes is like the most normal aspect of Conan Doyle. Like, he's such a crazy person. And I love it.
1: Yeah, as we'll get into, he was a doctor, he was a surgeon, he was obviously brilliant at plotting out these logic puzzles and injecting them into a narrative form. But all of his intelligence was all just sucked into those two things. Like it was all, it it all was concentrated there and there was a little, some of the other parts of his life were maybe the circulation was a little, was a little cut off over there.
0: The next year, Doyle partnered with his good friend and former classmate, George Turnivine Bud to start a medical practice. However, their relationship soured, and they quickly parted ways.
1: Listen here, Georgie. Your name is too weird. It's it's outshining my weird name. Arthur Conan Doyle is a nice, sensible, slightly weird name. I served as a ship's surgeon, and I got this far by having a mildly weird name that's just novel enough to be memorable but not strange enough to make people wonder what the fuck was wrong with your parents. This partnership is not gonna work.
0: (laughs) The thing that's really interesting about this to me and the reason why I specifically included this in the script is that it feels like this moment where he like gets out of the military, leaves (laughs) leaves serving as the SS Mayumba's surgeon behind in 1881, and he starts this private practice with his good buddy, and they're like, we're you and me, man. We're best friends, and we're gonna start this thing together. And we're gonna go out, and we're gonna be h- handlebar mustached homies together. Fucking ACD and GTB, motherfucker. Dude, GTB was just like, oh, hey, chap, I feel like you've got a good head for medical science. Let's go start a private practice. And what do you say?
1: Let's fucking do it. <laughs> what Arthur Conan Doyle's just the same voice as Woodrow Wilson.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love that. We haven't done anything with Woodrow Wilson in like ten years, so fuck it. His voice is getting usurped. I think it's just so interesting that this relationship obviously made a huge impact on Conan Doyle because this type of like we're engaging in an adventure together as good homies is like the central conceit to Holmes and Watson. And it's very apparent that George Turnovine Bud was he Conan Doyle viewed him as his watchman or watch. Oh, my God, Watson, you know, their friendship deteriorated. And it's when you look at the tropes of Watson and Holmes, it's, it's very apparent that Conan Doyle is trying to rewrite his own personal history and make this kind of almost like a chaos magic version of what could have happened, where he views himself as this genius, eccentric mastermind who's hard to deal with has all these peculiar habits, low key is a drug addict. Like that is Sherlock Holmes. And then I don't know anything about George Turnivine Bud, but just reading that sentence of like, him and his best friend started a business together, he went south. Is like, oh, okay. I totally get what that is.
1: You know what, old boy? I don't need you as a friend. You can't deal with me. You can't handle the ACD. I don't need you. I'll go off and I'll make my own friend. And he'll love me. And no matter how toxic I am, no matter how many drugs I do, he'll stay with me forever. And you know what? He's going to have a normal name. His name going to be John Watson, a nice Englishman's normal name. I'm the only one that gets a weird name.
0: Yeah, I I, honestly like I'm feeling that his middle name is Ignatius for fuck's sake, for fuck's sake.
1: Yeah, I think I think it's totally I'm a huge Sherlock Holmes fan and I've never made this connection but I think you've totally hit on something here like it seems very one-to-one to to me
0: let me see if I can find a photo of George Turnivine bud how crazy would it be if he just looks like John Watson
1: or if he just looks like you (laughs) he's the next oh my god
0: (laughs) oh my god is this actually a photo of him no it's not no yes wait
1: (laughs) I'm dear listener I cannot see what Dave is looking at so I'm like
0: Yeah, as in suspense. No, no, no. This is a photo of what is happening right now. Oh my God! You (laughs) need to look up. (laughs) Look up what he looks like. Look up what George Turnervine Bud looks like.
1: I don't understand what the range of emotions were just then.
0: He is a rather intense looking motherfucker.
1: The illness of Doctor George Turnervine Bud.
0: What does that guy look like? What does that guy look like?
1: This mutton chop motherfucker here. Yeah, dude. George Turnivine Bud looks like bow hunting on the side, fucking tea time in the middle.
0: (laughs) So uh, he's a white man, long angular nose. In this photo, he's wearing some sort of fedora hat, a button-up jacket, and he has mutton chops that are they're not necessarily mutton chops more as more as hair face cape no george turnivine bud looks like
1: you hit the randomized button on the character creation screen
0: yeah yeah for real oh man what a fucking god what a guy i want to read this article though because this is part of this photo is part of a research paper published in 1995 in the Journal of Medical Biography, and the title is "The Illness of George Turnavine Termavine Bud and Its Influence on the Literary Career of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle." Right, so it's it's Tumovine? It's Tumovine. No, because it says Turnavine. No, it says Turnavine right here. It says Turnavine. It his his name is Turnavine. The Ill- that's a typo. So this is by D. N. Pierce published in Torquay, United Kingdom. And uh, the name of the journal is The Illness of Dr. George Turnivine Budd and its Influence on the Literary Career of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. In the preface to his autobiography, Arthur Conan Doyle writes, I have had a life which, for variety and romance, could, I think, hardly be exceeded. One of the strangest episodes in this life was the time Conan Doyle spent in Plymouth in 1882 working in the practice of Dr. George Turnivine Budd. He had arrived full of optimism, but left six weeks later to an uncertain future with only 10 pounds in his pocket and his former colleague plotting his financial ruin. The shortage of money caused by Budd's actions led Conan Doyle to turn to literature to help make ends meet and his, and this indirectly to the creation of Sherlock Holmes. What the fuck? So they, and not only did they end on bad terms, but this guy was like trying to ruin him?
1: It's all in the chops, baby. You can see it in the chops. I see what they did. I see what happened because the in this article, it's like a scan of the, this article from, that was like printed in some kind of paper or journal or something like that from 1995 and in this font, Turnovine looks Tumovine. The R and the N bleed together. They thought that it was Tumovine, and they mistyped it in that heading.
0: So apparently, they met when they were students. Conan Doyle had first met Bud when a final year medical student at the University of Edinburgh. Bud came from a medical dynasty that originated in North Towton, Devon. His father, William had suggested that typhoid and typhus were different diseases nine years before jenner proved this to be so and went on to be a pioneer of epidemiology he proved that typhoid was a was waterborne his grandfather and four of his uncles were also doctors and their influence in Devon led one doctor from outside of the country to complain that all the doctors he met in Devon were quote-unquote Buddhists. What? Oh, I guess that's supposed to be a pun because of his last name is Bud? Or is that supposed to be Buddhists? It's b- Buddhists. Oh my god, it's Buddhists. Jesus fucking Christ. The Bud and Conan- the Bud that Conan Doyle had found in Edinburgh, however, was a black sheep of the family. He had just eloped with an underaged girl who was then his wife. Yikes! In order to escape, he had dyed his uh, blonde hair black, and Conan Doyle reports traces of this dye were still showing some years afterwards. After a few social engagements, Conan Doyle and Bud drifted apart, and after a two-day reunion in Bristol, Conan Doyle left to become ship surgeon on a steamer sailing to the southwest coast of Africa. Though enjoyable, this trip nearly cost Conan Doyle his life through tropical disease, and he had decided to curtail his wanderings. Back in England, he worked as an assistant for Dr. Horry, a family friend in Brighampton, before receiving two telegrams from Bud. They offered partnership in... I'm assuming this fucking thing, but I don't know how to go to the next page because this literary journal doesn't want me to be able to read more. It wants me to pay in order to read more, but I don't want to do that. So if somebody wants to read, if somebody wants to read the rest of this article, it's the uh, Journal of Medical Biography, the illness of Dr. George Turnival Budd and its influence on the literary career of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. All right, back to where we were. But yeah, I think it's fascinating. And knowing that they had such a bitter parting, it's either he based Watson on him, or maybe, depending on how that story played out, Moriarty is based on him. Either way, it was a formative relationship, and George Turnival Bud, he's got some uh, wicked mutton chops. That's
1: fucking full rack of ribs chops.
0: Yep. From this point on, Doyle started his own practice, which didn't go well. And while waiting in between patients, he started writing fiction. watching a footage from the summer of 1927 of Arthur Conan Doyle being interviewed.
2: You see, now I've got to speak one or two words and just to try my voice, I understand.
1: He sounds just like the impression we've been doing so far.
2: One of them is how I ever came to write the Sherlock Holmes stories and the other is about how I came to have psychic experiences and to take so much interest in that question. Well, first of all, about the Sherlock Holmes stories, it came about in this way. I was quite a a young doctor at the time. I had, of course, a scientific training and uh, I used occasionally to read detective stories. It always annoyed me how in the old-fashioned detective story, detective always seemed to get at his results, either by some sort of lucky chance or a fluke, or else it was quite unexplained how he got there. He got there, but he never gave an explanation how. That didn't seem to me quite playing the game. It seemed to me that he's bound to give his reasons why he came to his conclusions. Well, once I began to think about this, I began to think of turning scientific methods, as it were, onto the work of detection. And I used, as a student, to have an old professor, his name was Bell, who was extraordinarily quick at deductive work. He would look at the patient, he would hardly allow the patient to open his mouth, but he would make his diagnosis of the disease, and also very often of the patient's nationality and occupation and other points, entirely by his part of observation. So naturally, I thought to myself, well, if a scientific man like Bell was to come into the detective business, he wouldn't do these things by chance. He'd get the thing by building it up, scientifically. So, having once conceived that line of thought, uh, you can well imagine that I had, as it were, a new idea of the detective and one which it interested me to work out. I thought of a hundred little dodges, as you may say, a hundred little touches by which he could build up his conclusions, and then I began to write stories on those lines. At first, I think they attracted a little, very little attention. But after time, when I began the short adventures, one after the other, coming out month after month in the Strand Magazine, uh, people began to recognize that it was different to the old detective, that there was something there uh, which was new. They began to buy the magazine, and uh, it uh, prospered. So I may say did I. We both came along together. And
1: uh, from that
2: time, Sherlock Holmes fairly
1: took root. I've written a good deal more- Oh, and by the way, if I didn't mention it, I also, part of the reason why I created it is
0: because a pedophile tried to ruin me. Doyle struggled to find a publisher, submitting and being rejected by many institutions. Eventually, he wrote A Study in Scarlet, which was accepted by Ward, Locke, and Company. They paid him 25 pounds or roughly the equivalent of $3,000 today. He wrote The Sign of Four, which was published in 1890, for which he was not paid well. He he felt exploited basically by Wardlock. And so he pulled it from Wardlock, started publishing the Sherlock Holmes stories for the magazine, The Strand. And that kind of is what helped Holmes just kind of skyrocket to popularity. However, Conan Doyle, actually, before we move on, before we move on, what is, you've already said you're a big fan. I think you're probably a bigger fan than me. I like Sherlock Holmes, but I feel like you're hardcore Sherlock Holmes fan. What is your, when did you first encounter Holmes? What was your, what's your personal history with him? Have you ever dressed up like Holmes? I feel like you have to have, I feel like, I I think, I feel like I've seen a photo of you in that double build hat with the, with a fucking magnifying glass.
1: Yeah, for sure. I'm a huge fan of Sherlock Holmes going way back. Let's put in, let's get in the way back machine and dial it back to year one. We, I, I talked about this in episode one of Deep Cuts, the Stratemeyer Syndicate, but I got huge into mystery, mystery novels and stories whenever I was younger. It was a combination of hard-boiled detective stories like Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler and also whodunit mystery stuff like Sue Grafton, the ABC murders, and Agatha Christie and some of those other stories like that, and the big one was Sherlock Holmes. I read... I just, I was, I just started, I had always been aware of Sherlock Holmes and I started reading the stories around that time. I don't really remember like where I would have got them. I'm assuming the library. That's just gotta be the place where I got these collections of Sherlock Holmes stories and read them. And then I started watching those Basil Rathbone Sherlock Holmes movies as well. And I definitely put, took two baseball caps and put them on my head front and back many times.
0: I I absolutely did that too, 100%.
1: To form the Deer Hunter Cap, which as I joked about earlier, was never actually in a Sherlock Holmes story. It was it was purely an affectation of the Basil Rathbone version of Sherlock Holmes. There's tons of great Sherlock Holmes stories, or we're going to allude to it later, but The the Hound of Baskervilles is a great one. I think my favorite Sherlock Holmes story would have to be The Doctor's Case, which is uh, a story where a kind of like Tyrant, rich lord of a manor gets murdered and it's like a locked room mystery because he goes into his office, he shuts the door, he locks it, and then somehow he's killed inside. Nobody knows who did it. There was no way to enter. and he has a wife and three kids who have motive to have killed them because they stand to inherit a lot of money and he was like a total asshole. But there's but they can't figure out how to explain how he was killed because he was in this room. And then ultimately they discover that there's this bookshelf and one of the sons is a painter and he has painted a photorealistic version of what the bookshelf looks like when it's empty. And so he went into his office. He hid in this bookshelf and behind this painting that made it look like the bookshelf was empty because it was so photorealistic. And then whenever he shut and locked the door, he got moved the painting, came out and killed him. And I like the story a lot because of just, it's just one of the more particularly ingenious mystery solvings of any of the Sherlock Holmes stories. But I also like the way it resolves where basically like Sherlock Holmes and Watson figure out what happened, but then they basically assess the situation and they realize that the guy was just a total piece of shit. He was abusive and just a tyrant. And they basically killed him out of self-defense because he was just beating the shit out of them every day. And Sherlock and Watson decide to just not say anything. And they decide to pretend like they can't solve the mystery, which I just think is such a cool ending that Sherlock overcomes his ego to pretend like he failed in order to save these innocent people from going to prison who did kill this guy, but they had good reason to do it.
0: I remember one, uh, it's been forever since I've read them. I got really into them in like junior high. And I think I've only read a couple of the ones that are actually written by Conan Doyle, but I read a bunch of abridged versions of them. And there was, I remember one about a group of Roma who have like a snake charmer and i don't remember anything that happens in it other than there's a snake that's trained to kill people or something and i remember thinking that was really cool when i was 13 or 12 or whatever and i was like whoa train snake cool
1: it was all trains sna- train snakes and freddy krueger for you in that mind
0: <laughs> yeah yeah pretty much <laughs> yeah yeah holmes began to skyrocket in popularity after being published in the strand however Conan Doyle was not enjoying his success. He wrote to his mother in November of 1891, I think of slaying Holmes and winding him up for good and all. He takes my mind from better things. What
1: better thing were you fucking thinking about, Arthur Conan Doyle?
0: We're going to get there. In an attempt to discourage publishers from wanting more Holmes stories, Conan Doyle raised the price to unreasonable levels. However... He discovered the character was so popular that he could charge almost literally whatever he wanted. He quickly became one of the highest paid writers of his day. In December of 1893, he had Professor Moriarty kill Holmes in a story called The Final Problem. For research for this, I was listening to a podcast about the history of Holmes and and actually part of it was about the history of Holmes and part of it was about the fan fervent desire for Holmes and John Watson to be a gay couple in the new BBC series. And it's fascinating, really interesting story. But They called that story, not the final problem, but the final solution. And I was like, ah.
1: For some reason I knew that was where it was going.
0: I was like, ah, guys. No. That is not. And normally this podcast is extremely well-researched. It's a really fun explainer podcast called.
1: I also love the other great Sherlock Holmes story, The Hounds of the Gestapo.
0: Yeah. Oh, it's called Decoder Ring. That's a really good, it's a really good explainer podcast as well. Decoder Ring. Public outcry was instant and incessant. The day the story was published, workers left their jobs parading through the streets. People wore black armbands for a week afterwards. A torrential downpour of mail was sent to both the publisher and Doyle himself, pleading for Holmes to not be dead. But Doyle swore that Holmes had in fact met his demise at the bottom of Reichenbach Falls.
1: that energy to something actually important for our world, people.
0: Yep. However, time heals all wounds. And in short, eight years later, in 1901, Conan Doyle published the novel The Hound of the Baskervilles. Not only did it revive Holmes but it is widely considered one of the best Holmes stories ever, having been adapted countless times to both stage and screen. Holmes and Watson would become enduring, iconic characters in the mystery world. People love them. They obsess over them. Some convince themselves that there's secretly a gay relationship between Holmes and Watson, or that Holmes is in fact a real person.
1: However, none of this really mattered that much to Arthur Conan Doyle. He was more concerned with fairies.
0: and then the fairies showed up. Despite being a man steeped in science, Conan Doyle was an individual always in search of something, also attempting to solve life's great mysteries. Believe it or not, he had an obsession with the mystical. He was fascinated with paranormal phenomena, In 1887, Doyle began attending a series of seances, telepathic experiments, and discussions with multiple mediums. He even wrote for the spiritualist journal Light later that year. In an article he wrote for them, he declared himself a quote unquote spiritualist, which for anybody who doesn't remember, a spiritualist is the term that was popularized at the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century. For people who believed in paranormal phenomena, who believed in psychic phenomena, who believed in otherworldly beings, fae, aliens, all that good shit, the, the kind of true believer moniker of the day was spiritualist.
1: Conan Doyle was a proto Tom DeLonge from Blink 182. He was like, you know what? I had a great run cranking out these bangers, defining people's childhoods, but I don't give a fuck about it. I want to chase these fairies.
0: Hello there! Arthur Conan Doyle in my nightmare! My first
2: experiences in that direction were just about the time
0: when uh, Sherlock
2: Holmes was being built up in my mind. That would be about the year 1886 and 1887. So nobody can say that I formed my opinions on psychic matters uh, very hastily. There's just 41 years now since I wrote a signed article upon the subject, which appeared in a magazine called Light, so that I put myself on record. During these forty-one years, I never lost any opportunity of reading, of studying, and of experimenting on this matter. People ask me, will I write any more Sherlock Holmes stories? I, I certainly don't think it's at all probable. But as I grow older, the psychic uh, subject always grows in intensity and then one becomes more earnest upon it and I should think that my few remaining years will probably be devoted much more in that direction than in the direction of literature. Nonetheless, of course, I haven't abandoned writing. One has to earn one's living, but my principal thoughts are that I should extend, if I can, uh, that knowledge which I have on psychic matters and spread it as far as I can to those who have been less fortunate. But don't for one moment suppose that I'm taking it upon myself to say that I am the inventor of spiritualism or that I'm even the principal exponent of it. There are many great mediums, many great psychical researchers, investigators of all sorts. All that I can do is to be a gramophone on the subject to go about to meet people face to face, to try and make them understand that this thing is not the foolish thing which is so often represented, but that it really is a great philosophy and, as I think, the basis of all religious improvement in the future of the human race. I suppose I've said with more mediums, good and bad and indifferent, and perhaps any living being. Anyhow, a larger variety, because I've traveled so much all over the world, and wherever I've gone, either in Australia, America, or South Africa, uh, the best that there was to be had in that direction uh, was put at my disposal. Therefore, when people come along and contradict me, you have had no experience at all, read little and perhaps never been to a séance, uh, you can imagine that I don't take their opposition very seriously. When I talk on this subject, I'm not talking about what I believe. I'm not talking about what I think. I'm talking about what I know. There's an enormous difference, believe me, between believing a thing and knowing a thing. and talking about things that I've handled, that I've seen, that I've heard with my own ears. And I'll always, mind you, in the presence of witnesses... I never risk hallucination. I usually, in most of my experiments, have had six, eight, or ten witnesses, all of whom have seen and heard the same things that I have done. Gradually, I became more and more convinced on the matter as I studied, year in, year out. But it was only in the time of the war when all these splendid young fellows were disappearing from our view The whole world was saying, well, what's become of them? Where are they? What are they doing now? Have they dissipated into nothing? Or are they still the grand fellows that we used to know? It was only at that time that I realized the overpowering importance to the human race of knowing more about this matter. Then it was that I
1: what is he myself. even talking about? That is the most pedantic turn-of-the-century Englishman version of saying, do your own research. <laughs> like It's uncanny how this is just like QAnon conspiracy theory bullshit.
0: Which is really funny because Arthur Conan Doyle was vehemently pro... Like I guess he wasn't vehemently. He was very vocally pro-vaccine and he had public deb- debates with people about the benefits of vaccines you
1: know how somebody can be an extreme conspiracy theorist and also be very pro-vaccine because he existed in a time before a handful of people arbitrarily politicized getting vaccinated even bef- even like the most hardcore conspiracy nut didn't know to have a conspiracy theory about vaccines because they had yet to live through an era in life where they had, through the power of suggestion, arbitrarily started to believe that anything about vaccines was conspiratorial because nobody had ever said it. Like, that. that's just the long and short of it is that the only reason why anybody has these thoughts about vaccines is because somebody said it. And they're just like, oh, somebody said it. So now it's a thing.
0: In 1889, Arthur Conan Doyle became a founding member of the Hampshire Society of Psychical Research, and in 1893, he joined the London chapter. In 1894, he even went on a poltergeist hunt in Devon with Sir Didney Scott and Frank Podmore, noted parapsychologist. Those are not real names. Bro, those are the, those are those dudes' real names, I promise. You made up these names. I promise you that-, that
1: You ran out- of, You were researching this and you were like, you ran out of story or just like, oh, it just fizzles out. And then you just started making up the rest of this.
0: In your defense- Didney Scott and Frank Podmore do sound like names that I would come up with, but no, Sir Didney Scott and Frank Podmore, noted parapsychologist, were real people. In 1918, Arthur Conan Doyle published the book The New Revelation, a book about his perspective on spiritualism. Some of Doyle's scholars have suggested that this turn towards spiritualism was prompted by the death of his son, Kingsley. However, he began presenting himself publicly as a spiritualist in 1916. Kingsley died on the 28th of October, 1918, from pneumonia contracted during his convalescence after being seriously wounded in the 1916 Battle of Somme.
1: Eric Clapton wrote a song. Arthur Conan Doyle wrote a
0: Bible on psychics. Now I'm trying to think of the lyrics to that song. What are the, if I saw your, f-
1: would I know your name? If I saw you in
0: heaven, would you know my name? If I saw you through the shenanigans of a crystal ball in a weird psychic sketchy home.
1: Incidentally. Heaven would only have white people in it because Eric Clapton is a known racist and
0: ardent anti-immigrant person. He literally said, keep London white. That guy sucks. Guy's a total piece of shit. You know who else was probably fucking really racist? Arthur Conan Doyle. Fucking
1: Turnavine Bud. That dude was racist as hell. You can see it in the chops.
0: George Turnivine Bud grew those chops out just so that he could telegraph to people how racist he was. Nevertheless, the war-related deaths of many people who were close to him appears to have pushed him even further and strengthened his long-held belief that life after death did exist and spiritual communication was possible. Doyle's brother, Brigadier General Ennis Doyle, died from pneumonia in February 1919. His two brothers-in-law as well as his two nephews also died shortly after the war. His second book on spiritualism, The Vital Message, was published in 1919. So let's just, before we move into the real Buckwild area, let's just talk about this for a minute, okay? So he's this doctor, he's a guy, he's got a mustache, and he's like, what shall I do with my life? I think I shall become a doctor. And then he goes, he becomes a doctor, And then he goes overseas and he's a surgeon on a boat. And he's like, I think I shall become a surgeon. Oh shit, this is like really dangerous. And I almost die of dysentery, fuck this. I'm gonna go start a medical practice with my homie. And then they start the medical practice. It goes very poorly. Apparently George, what was his name? George Turnabout, Turnavine Bud is just like, fuck this guy, man, I'm gonna do everything in my power to end this motherfucker. And then, you know, in order to keep his private practice afloat and to pass the time, because he wasn't getting any fucking patience, he, uh, Conan Doyle starts writing fiction. He writes, starts writing novels, starts writing short stories, starts writing stories about detective, Sherlock Holmes. Becomes wildly popular. He becomes instantly upset by that. He's like, this fucking sucks. I don't want to be known for writing fiction. I want to be known for my literary works. I don't want to be known for The Lost World. I want to be known for some other bullshit that I don't know because no one cares about Arthur Conan Doyle's literary works. So then he's getting so much money and he's like, I really just want to hang out with ghost hunter friends. This is fucking dumb. And then everybody in his family fucking dies. He gets really sad. And instead of falling into a pit of existential despair and nihilism, he decides to go hunt fairies perhaps the most famous of his books during this time was the coming of the fairies released in 1922 in which Doyle described his beliefs about nature and the existence of fairies and spirits the book reproduced five Cottingley fairies photographs it asserted that these were actual photographs and not faked at all however let's uh, let's talk about this what is this what is this photo that purports to be a real example of proof that fairies exist
1: in the world of 4chan and 8chan, this would be referred to as a low-effort post. It's just straight-up little fucking paper dolls. (laughs) Like, there's no... There is no way of thinking that this is real.
0: It is a portrait of a young girl. It's that weird early... Photograph, the the Gateria type is is gone, Photograph is here to stay, and it, it still takes forever to burn the image onto plates to get those plates developed, and because of that, they just look creepy. And so there's a young girl with flowers in her hair staring vacantly off into outer space, And then uh, there's a little bit of a waterfall on the left side. And in the foreground, there are one, two, three, four miniature people with wings. One of them is playing a flute. The other one's playing some sort of lyre. The other two are dancing. And uh, they are very obviously paintings. They are drawings. They are not photographs of. It's not even
1: close. They're, they're, they are illustrations.
0: It's terrifying though. It's really like this photograph makes me uncomfortable. I don't even really know why, but it, it's very unsettling to me.
1: And also, if this was really happening in real life, these little fucking fanciful, fanciful fairies were dancing in front of you. There's no human being in this fucking world that would be able to process that information in any amount of time to just start being casual about it like this photo this woman is just looking at the camera she has her hand on her head and she just has a somewhat of a neutral expression on her face like the kind of thing you expect to see from these old photos where someone has to just sit there for like an hour while the photo is like developing or whatever and so they just have to sit there in as comfortable a position as they can find with a neutral expression on their face that won't start to hurt or get tiring after a while There's no way that this girl could just sit here like this and not just be like looking down at the fucking fairies in front of her and just going, oh my god! There's no amount of time that this person could have gotten this uh, used to fairies to where she could just casually sit there looking at the camera as they danced in
0: front of her. It would be hard to have that vacant stare expression if a kitten was in front of you, let alone a miniaturized person playing a flute with giant wings. Also, they're not even consistent. Three of them have wings. One of the little fairies doesn't even have wings.
1: Well, she hasn't earned her wings yet.
0: Is that a thing? Is that a piece of fairy mythology that I'm not aware of?
1: She has to take this young girl on a fanciful trip to show her what the light, what the world would be like if she was never born, and then she can get her wings.
0: I hate you. Decades later, the photos were definitively shown to have been faked, and their creators admitted to it. Doyle, during this time, lived a wild life. He was friends with American magician Harry Houdini.
1: Quote-unquote, admitted to it, in as far as anybody would ever need to admit to something that's blatantly fake. This is like Dylan Rafe and Joe Cosmo admitting that the Velocity Gnome saga was not true and not real.
0: Yeah, completely. Even though Houdini explained that his feats were based on illusion and trickery, Doyle was convinced that Houdini had supernatural powers, and said as much in his work, The Edge of the Unknown.
1: So this is the point where we've realized, like, oh, no, there's no casting dispersions. There's no ambiguity. Arthur Conan Doyle is just an idiot. (laughs) There's no, like, oh, like, he just really has these beliefs. Maybe it's true. Oh, no, he's dumb. (laughs) Like, Houdini's like, no, man, I'm a magician. Like, it's not real. He's like, no. No it uh you are a real magic man i see it i can you've done this you've done these illusions in front of me there's no other explanation other than you have magical powers he's like no seriously like i'm gonna show you like this is how it works like you do this and sleight of hand he's like no witchcraft i say and he's like, sure,
0: man, I'll be right back. Isn't that such a great idea for a character though? Like a person who is a witch or wizard, someone who actually has real magic, masquerading as a sleight of hand magician in order to make money off of their mystical abilities. That's awesome. That is such a cool idea. That's not a character, good boy. That's the real life. Houdini was doing that. <laughs> I love that Houdini was just like, Bruh, it's, uh, it, you just look at the cards and then you just count them and look, like, this is the one, this was your card, right? It was the seven of diamonds. Goodbye, Jove! How did you know it was the back? I can't believe it, it must be sorcery. You are literally magical. I love it. Houdini's friend, Bernard M. L. Ernst, recounted a time when Houdini had performed an impressive trick at his home in Doyle's presence. Houdini had assured Doyle that the trick was a pure illusion and had expressed the hope that this demonstration would persuade Doyle not to go around endorsing paranormal phenomena, simply because he could not think of an explanation for what he had seen other than a supernatural power. But according to Ernst, Doyle simply refused to believe that he had seen a trick. Houdini became a prominent opponent of the spiritualist movement in the 1920s, after the death of his beloved mother. He insisted that spiritualist mediums employed trickery and consistently exposed them as frauds. These difficulties between Houdini and Doyle eventually led to a bitter public falling out between the two of them. And as if that's not enough, Richard Milner, an American historian of science, presented a case that Doyle may have been the perpetrator of Piltdown Man. Andrew, are you familiar with Piltdown Man? Oh, this is like my, one of my favorite things. I'm going to read this and then we're going to talk about it. I love Piltdown Man. Doyle may have been a perpetrator of the Piltdown Man hoax of 1912, creating the counterfeit humanoid fossil that fooled the scientific world for almost 40 years. So basically, if anybody's not familiar, Piltdown Man was for a long time purported to be the missing link in evolution. They thought that they had finally solved the the gap of evolution. And they had this skull and limited skeletal structure that looked like a humanoid in between a man and a monkey. And this thing was called Piltdown Man. And it was supposedly found in this place, Piltdown. And it was thought basically for 40 years to be the missing link. And then eventually they figured out that somebody went to an animal graveyard and dug up a bunch of animal parts and made a skeleton and then passed it off as the missing link. Miller noted that Doyle had the plausibility of motive, namely revenge on the scientific establishment for debunking one of his favorite psychics, and said that the lost world appeared to contain several clues referring cryptically to his having been involved in the Piltdown Man hoax. Samuel Rosenberg's 1974 book, Naked is the Best Disguise, purports to explain how, throughout his writings, Doyle had provided overt clues to otherwise hidden or suppressed aspects of his way of thinking that seemed to support the idea that Doyle would be involved in such a hoax. It's a fascinating story. We're only going to touch on it in this episode, but it's super, super cool. I love Piltown Man. I think it's super bizarre. And the fact that it may or may not have been Arthur Conan Doyle is huh. hilarious.
1: I'll show you scientists for proving that my favorite psychic was lying and explaining the things that they did as just simple sleight of hand tricks and confidence man tactics and leading strategies. I'm going to... Get a bunch of animal skeletons and tape them together.
0: I mean, that's basically whoever did it, that's basically what they did. And then this is the opposing side of the argument, basically saying that Arthur Conan Doyle didn't fake the Piltdown Man. However, more recent research suggests that Doyle was not involved. In 2016, researchers analyzed DNA evidence showing that responsibility for the hoax lay with an amateur archaeologist, Charles Dawson who had originally, in air quotes, found the remains. He had initially not been considered a likely perpetrator because the hoax was seen as being too elaborate for him to have devised by himself. However, the DNA evidence showed that a supposedly ancient tooth he had, in air quotes, discovered in 1915 at a different site came from the same jaw as Piltdown Man, suggesting that he had planted them both. That tooth, too, was later proven to have been planted as part of a hoax. Dr. Charles Stringer, an anthropologist from the Natural History Museum, was quoted as saying, Conan Doyle was known to play golf at the Piltdown site, and had even given Dawson a lift in his car to the area. But he was a public man and a very busy man, and it is very unlikely that he would have had time to create this elaborate hoax. So, There are some coincidences, but I think that they are just coincidences. When you look at the fossil evidence, you can only associate Dawson with all of these findings. And Dawson was known to be personally ambitious. He wanted a professional recognition. He wanted to be a member of the Royal Society, and he was after an MBE. He wanted people to stop seeing him as an amateur.
1: But isn't that exactly what the mastermind would want you to believe in a Sherlock Holmes mystery? Yes. Wouldn't he wouldn't the exact thing be to pin the entire thing on some person and set him up as having the motive and plant all the evidence and engineer the entire situation to point directly to somebody else?
0: Yes. Maybe it's Conan Doyle. But so far, let's just recap this for a minute. So Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes, blah, 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 writes some spiritualist novels. He's got an interest in the paranormal. Everybody he fucking knows dies. His mind goes off the deep end. And then he's like, fairies are real. I know they are real. And also my good pal, Harry Houdini. He's definitely a wizard.
1: Look at these pictures of these strinky dinks. Proof that fairies are real.
0: Look at these adorable little children. They've got wings. I love referring to them as Shrinky Dinks. (laughs) I love this. I love it so much. So basically he kind of Normally, I think this is probably where we would like deconstruct it a little bit and talk about what we thought made him so interested in the paranormal. But I feel like it's almost a little bit simplistic. It's not like a really deep thing with him. Like it's he was so involved in science and probably the ego inside of him thought that he understood everything about how the natural world worked. He was looking for that next mountain to climb.
1: He hit the, he hit that Jim Carrey stage of the fucking Ma- Maslow's hierarchy of needs that we've referenced many times.
0: I feel like at this point, it's like every episode, I feel like there's of the bingo card of deep cuts things. It's like whenever one of us says kayfabe, whenever one of us says Mobius strip, whenever one of us says simulacrum, whenever I say something having to do with Jack Kirby or Steve Ditko and probably Maslow's hierarchy of needs or that guy's a piece of shit. That gets said a lot too. Yeah, I don't know, man. I feel, for some reason I feel empathy for Arthur Conan Doyle. Cause I, I I know what that prison can be like where you think you want something and then you get there and you're like, this is not at all what I thought it was gonna be. And you just can't not be there. You know what I mean? Like they, it's you're, it's a glass, uh, uh, a, golded, a gilded cage.
1: Th- this didn't fill the hole that I was desperately seeking to fill, aliens.
0: <coughs> Aliums M <am> shrinkadamps. <laughs>
1: that's uh, that's the new chain restaurant we're gonna we're gonna open. Aliums. Welcome to Aliens and Shrinkadamps. If you want, if you want a waiter, just flip that sign on your table that says it's- "Abduct me, please." And if you don't want us to come over, flip it to the other side where it says "Shrinkadamp me alone."
0: I love the idea, though, that everything in there would be like themed, so it would be like I'll have a I'll have a fairy burger. Oh no, maybe the maybe the way you order is like a medium. Like the medium comes over and just tries to guess what you want.
1: Your ancestor orders for you. <laughs> Your great-grandfather is saying that you should get the spiritual realm bloomin' onion.
0: Ironically, I think the only thing... You know, I think there's something to be said for, like, too much success. There's a level of fame or notoriety or financial gain... That is not healthy and in a burgeoning newly capitalist society of 1880s industrial revolution at its peak, England, Conan Doyle serves as a perfect example of that, right?
1: You either fucking go to space and then come back and thank all of your employees for helping you to making it possible while they're all being subjected to like harsh working conditions driving for 12 hours straight having to piss in bottles in order to fucking make their quotas or you hold massive like fucking listening parties where you just play your unfinished music in a giant football stadium where you're wearing like a fucking leather mask over your face and having known rapists on stage with you or you're just like
0: fairies they're out there (laughs) you want to come over on Saturday we're doing a fairy listening party where we all just sit in my courtyard and listen intently for the fay. I'm going to be showing you pictures
1: of real fairies in Wimbledon Stadium. I'm going to have
0: I'm going to have H. H. Holmes on stage with me. You know, I, and I, the interesting thing about this too is how his legacy is not this at all. You, know, you and I are talking about it because we're into weird stuff, but most people, it's just like. Arthur Conan Doyle, yeah, he's the guy with the weird mustache and uh, Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes, I love Sherlock Holmes.
1: It's one of those, it's one of those fucking hit you with a stinging right hook out of left field Wikipedia deep dives, where you're reading, you're a teenager and you're reading the Wikipedia page of Arthur Conan Doyle, and then there's just this section of it that's labeled "belief in fairies," and you're just like. <laughs> yeah
0: almost literally and it's funny too the only person that this is harder on than arthur conan doyle is his family the ones that were still alive like his son his daughter either they We're gonna, we're about to watch a video in closing for this episode. Our dad was the turn of the century, Alex Jones. Yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna watch this video, which is an interview with Adrian Conan Doyle, where an English reporter goes to Conan Doyle's castle, where Adrian Conan Doyle currently lives. This, I think it was in the seventies, late sixties. And there's there's a room in Arthur Conan Doyle's castle that Adrian Conan Doyle has transformed into an exact recreation of Baker Street, which is so weird. And I feel like is the perfect end to this episode where it's just like the people in his inner circle did everything in their power to distract you from the fact that he spent the last 40 years of his life being like, fairies.
3: In the Vaud canton of Switzerland, a remote, medieval castle once visited by emperors and popes. For some years now, it's been the home of an Englishman, Adrian Conan Doyle, son of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes and the world's best-selling author of all time, after the Bible and Shakespeare.
0: Adrian Conan Doyle driving a red sports car
3: adrian conan doyle devotes his life to sustaining his father's memory and reputation at the chateau's conan doyle foundation he has created the famous sherlock holmes room this is the famous room this is the famous room 221 b baker street a fog outside the window and so on now the most important thing about this room is that everything is genuine the tobacco the
1: the um
0: whiskey
1: everything is about 1890 i
0: should have to speak to mrs hudson about this this is a monty python
1: sketch isn't this amazing this is a monty python sketch
0: isn't this amazing i almost texted this to you while i was doing this research and then i was like no we gotta we, we got i gotta show this to him live he has he's he charges in he's obviously got this like air of like i've got
1: to be impressive and give off this vision of power and confidence and I'm gonna come in here. I'm gonna charge in, and I'm gonna have this whole spiel that I have worked out, and I'm just gonna start explaining it to this interview person. And he they walk in. He tries to shut the door, and it won't shut. It just keeps like opening back up as he's talking. Like he's just reaching behind him and trying to get it to shut. And he eventually turns around to like really try to shut it fully, and it won't shut. And then he's just like, "I've got to get Mister H- Missus Houston after this." And then he just and then he just leaves it and keeps talking.
3: Leonardo da Vinci today. And all England helped us find these things. Uh, everything in the room is named in the story. There's not a single object here which is not named in one or other of the stories. Every object? Yes, every object. It's hard to imagine, as I said, many. The now, door opens, the again. door swings open again and hits him in the back of the head. Mrs.
2: Houston, Houston was
1: fucking fired. If
3: we found, for instance, um, Clark Russell uh, of 1895. No good. So they, we searched England, we got them. The, um, all the chemical gears, all of the period. was very kindly presented by the Wellcome Historical Museum. And you'll find all those relics of Holmes's personal characteristics and idiosyncrasies. Here's, for instance, you've got the famous syringe sh- over there. Yes. Why, why do you think your father made him a drug addict? It's rather later in the story. Well, no, I think it was rather, you know, at that period, the, the, uh, you, you had um, a certain feel coming out of the earlier Victorian authors. And uh, to make a man uh, outstanding, you uh, had to give him certain little piccadillos or vices of his own. Mm-hmm. And I think you had it coming through Stendhal and, and through De Quincey and others like that, you see. And so he made him a drug addict. Now, uh, not exactly an addict, because he was always a master of the drug. Holmes was always a master of cocaine. Never was cocaine a master of Holmes.
2: What
1: the but fuck does America that mean? Sherlock Holmes, sense. master of cocaine. This so <laughs> is the greatest thing I've he ever, ever heard. Was he was always I the know, master of cocaine.
0: But this fan. is what I'm talking about, though, about <laughs> how it's just recontextualizing the legacy.
1: This is a fucking, this is a Monty Python character. This is not a real guy. You made up this story and then you just found a Monty Python sketch out of context
3: his tobacco in the Persian Slipper, uh, all these sticks, of course, connected, either the Hound of the Baskervilles, or with the, um, with the poison belt, <laughs> other famous cases. Oh, those okay. are some of his ke- uh, chemical formulae. And those are all p- contemporary? Oh, yes. Everything here is contemporary. Every single thing. And even these books contain, these, the famous indexes, actually do contain reports on crime cases.
0: That's how much money he a, has, a is that he, period, could, he can make a whole room cosplay. Yeah, with, but, uh, like,
1: actual books that you never even open or look at that are full of, like, full actual reports on fictional cases.
3: That's right. The microscope of the period, of course, low-power microscope. These are blood samples. Obviously, Holmes has been taking some experiments on blood. His boxing gloves. He's a great boxer, you remember? And then over here, you have other famous relics... By oh, the well, I'm very sorry that they're both not here to greet you. They're out, but you see they were called away in the middle of their tea. Uh, those are rather nice, mm-hmm. these little uh, lead balls here. They were actually taken out of the body of a murdered man. they two bullets, Scotland Yard, they kindly gave them to Holmes.
1: It's a pile it's of cocaine. 10. This is not part of the room. Mrs. To Houston to should 10 have 10. cleaned that up before this interview. It's-
3: Here's a gasogene, the famous gasogene, and uh, that's where Watson used to keep the brandy. I think it was in there because it was not, or it might have been in here. I think it was in here because a cork comes out more easily. He was always rushing, you remember, to give clients brandy on the slightest provocation. I oh, love the bullets in the wall. Ah, the V R, Victoria it's Regina. Perfect. And that's the mark of the air gun slug. You remember in the uh, empty house, the adventure of the empty house, when that. Loathsome character, Sebastian Moran, tried to rob us of Holmes. But uh, it went through the shadow of Holmes's head, was really a plaster bust, and ended there. You're playing along very really much with the myth of Sherlock Holmes, but in fact, your father rather resented the fact that his reputation depended on Holmes rather than the rest of his life. Well, didn't he? reputation, no. I wouldn't put it that way. I would say that. Uh, he was fond of Holmes. He had the idea that he disliked Holmes is absolute nonsense. But uh, he took the view, and I entirely agree with that view, that Holmes obscured his finer writings. The White Company, Sir Nigel, the Gerard stories and so, which have been in print, after all, for 80 years in the case of the White Company, never out of print, which, to my way, I think, is a proof of immortality in a book of great literature. And he felt rightly that, that uh, Holmes' obscuring is more important. There's been a good deal of speculation as to who was the original for Sherlock Holmes. Was there a person on whom the character of Sherlock Holmes was based? The character? No. Uh, The methods, yes. Uh, My father's old professor, Dr. Bell, uh, was certainly the model on which the methods of Sherlock Holmes are based. The, The methods of observation and deduction began and ended there. The personality of Holmes and the uh, way of putting those methods into practice in real-life crime did not belong to Bell at all. It belonged to my father. And Bell himself was one of the first to see that, because he wrote to my father and said, if You are yourself, Sherlock Holmes, and well, you know it. How do your father feel about that? He admitted it at the very end of his life. When he knew he was dying, he gave one last interview to an American journalist. This is in 1930. And he said, I confess now that if anybody was Sherlock Holmes, it was myself. Of course, all the criminologists knew it right away. That's why the French uh, named, for instance, the certe uh, Police Laboratories at Lyon, the laboratory of Conan Doyle. They recognized it once, and they were continuously in correspondence with my father about many famous cases. Um, I have in my files an article, a leader from the Times, written about... Two years before my father. I'm
1: having this really specific emotion that I'm having trouble articulating. But I'm thinking, I'm sitting here and watching this. We've sort of covered episodes that dealt with similar things of some kind of figure, and then they have this legacy, and then we see their kids becoming like the gatekeepers of the legacy or the curators of the legacy. We, we've discussed different instances of that and talked about how... A lot of times the children of these famous and sort of controversial people where they'll kind of like airbrush over the more, contro- the more controversial aspects of their parents legacy because low key they're just trying to protect their own legacy and nobody wants to just admit that they are the lineage of somebody who's done terrible things or they want to continue making money off of the legacy of their parent. And it's hard to monetize something whenever you openly admit that there's this massively controversial aspect of it. And, you know, I I think that's less of a thing here. There's not really any big part of Arthur Conan Doyle's legacy that was like problematic or like, oh, he wrote Sherlock Holmes, but he also had slaves. There's nothing like that necessarily. It's really just more like embarrassing. It's more of just like, yeah, he wrote Arthur Conan, uh, he wrote Sherlock Holmes. And also he just thought that fairies were real that's just like a slightly humiliating thing that you just wouldn't want to admit as part of your father's legacy there's an aspect of that here of just like oh this like super rich son of a famous author just trying to gloss over this but there's also something here where There's something about there's something that's so profoundly sad to me of building this shrine to your father's memory and legacy and just like existing in it and becoming like an expert on it to these insanely microscopic details and just like living in this house that is it's just a shrine to your dad's like ideas I don't know there's just something very sad to me about that it's almost heartwarming in a way but it's also just profoundly sad
0: especially later in this interview he talks about how he basically took over writing the Holmes stories so like he I think he co-wrote three or four novels about Holmes and then that guy got sick and then Adrian and Conan Doyle just kept writing Sherlock Holmes novels which is like you said it's Part of it is very sweet and very endearing and oh, he's carrying on his father's work and it's this act of devotion and love for his father. And another part of it's you don't have your own identity. You don't have your own things you want to do. You just want to keep writing Sherlock Holmes fan fiction. Like it's not even like Brian Herbert and like the, the Dune sequel novels that he writes where it's like Dune is such an expansive universe. There's like, I could understand being around that and getting obsessed with it and wanting to play in that universe. But the universe of Sherlock Holmes is fairly myopic. It's two guys and then a case and it's an intricately plotted mystery, obviously, which presents its own interesting problems to solve. But it's at a certain point, is there anything new to say with Sherlock Holmes? Or are you just saying the same things that your father said as a means of reminding people that your father exists, therefore validating your father's legacy, therefore increasing your own clout? I, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I'm sure that there is some aspect of that in there, but just how slavishly like devoted to the intricate details of the world of Sherlock Holmes this is and the fact that he's created this room in his house and it has all these fucking details that are like there's something about that it's just like what is he trying to prove Th- there's almost just something like, i'm sure there is some element of like i'm just trying to carry on the legacy and have the clout of being the new author of sherlock holmes and gaining the, the fame and notoriety second hand for my father but then also like it's so in depth and detailed that it's like what there there's got to be some aspect of that of just still trying to cull his father's attention in some way like maybe arthur conan doyle just didn't give him the validation that he wanted and so he's just still trying to capture it i don't know there's something about watching that just uh, just this dude just alone in this room of his father's like legacy that just makes me feel so sad
0: and the thing that his father didn't like too it's one thing if he was just like uh now we're going to go to the fairy room where my father has real pickled fairies. Yeah, in closing for this episode, my thoughts are Arthur Conan Doyle seems like a very peculiar and interesting person that I would have loved to have spent an afternoon with. And it also probably, the last person on earth that i would have expected for his life to take the direction that it would have like i never would have thought that he would be a fairy hunter ever i never would have in a million years in a million years if someone's like all right so there's this famous author he wrote sherlock holmes something everybody knows what do you think he did with the rest of his life and i was like i don't know write books that were not as successful well yeah that's technically true but like about what? I don't know. Maybe he made another detective. Wasn't he a doctor? Maybe it's like sciencey stuff, but not really. I don't know. Did he like write textbooks or something? I-, I have no idea. What did he do? Oh, he was a monster hunter. He was. Uh, he was searching for fairies, and he believed in psychics. <laughs> Yeah. Never in a million years. All right. Papa Price, do you got any final thoughts on our boy, Arthur Conan Doyle?
1: I'm a huge fan of Sherlock Holmes. I've been reading the stories since I was a kid. Definitely was shocked to find out this aspect of Arthur Conan Doyle's life whenever I dove into the Wikipedia of it all. Whenever I was in my late teens, I think just early days of internet, the internet becoming like a More prevalent part of our lives and people just getting sucked into these like deep dives of falling into k holes and learning information about things that they're interested in. And yeah, I mean, it's just, it's interesting how it parallels things that things that are happening today where you see these like high profile celebrities who just go off of the deep end and start promoting these like insane things and using their influence to convince people of shit that's just like blatant misinformation and dangerous mistruths that are shaping our society in really bad ways. And it's like a proto version of that where it's almost like the fun version of it, which we've talked about so many times. I wish we could go back to these days where you could just have this mega famous fucking celebrity who's just like, I I think that fairies are real. And it's just like a weird thing. It doesn't really have any impact on the world. It's just weird, but fine. That's great. Great. Arthur Conan Doyle believe in fairies. I love it. I'll, I believe in them too. I'll go hunting with you for fairies. Now it's just, now it's just depressing and fucked up when stuff like this happens. I want to go back in only just this way. In no other ways do I want society to go back to the late 1800s. Except that when people buy into conspiracy theory bullshit, it doesn't spiral out of control and change our society for the worse.
0: I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. This has been Deep Cuts. Uh, If you want to find me on the internet, you can do so at heydavebaker.com or on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at xdavebakerx. Andrew, where can people find you on the internet?
1: You can find me stalking through the lily fields in the English countryside with my handy slingshot and uh, lavender pellets strapped to my belt, slowly stalking, searching, hunting for the elusive fairy so that I might bag one and bring it back to society to show them once and for all that I was right the entire time. And you can also find me at dapricerights.com where you can get my book, Deadbolt AI Private Eye. You can also get some Deep Cuts merch by going to deepcutspod.com, clicking on the shop, or just going to bit.ly.com slash Deep Cuts merch. You can get some t-shirts. You can get all kinds of stuff with Deep Cuts graphics on it. And also, uh, a couple things. So just to reiterate, some of the places you can find um, us and the types of content that we're making, aside from the podcast, you can go and you can follow us on Facebook, Deep Cuts Podcast on Facebook, where we put out we we put out videos, reaction videos, where we watch old movies and react to them. You can follow us on TikTok at Mystery Treehouse, where we post these sort of like uh quick explainer videos where we explain a whole story in a minute those are really fun you can follow us on instagram where we post memes and videos at deep cuts pod you can join our facebook group which is a cool little community that we have it's this deep cuts podcast facebook group where a bunch of listeners go in there and we look at we people post memes and those are the memes that end up getting talked about on the pizza paparista me celebritas and also we just started a discord so you can join the deep cuts podcast discord you just launched today special thanks to jay bard which is the listener and a member of the deep cuts podcast facebook group who single-handedly put together our discord it's been launched it's called deep cuts pod just go to bitly.com slash deep cuts discord or click the link in the show notes find it on discord join it and um, just getting going so we'll see how it goes all right guys it's time for another edition of the Pizza Pizza Paparitza Mimarizza
0: Celebritza. Oh, last week we had uh, Pizza Paparitza Mimoritza Celebritza at the Mountains of September Madness Final Three Showdown. Andrew, who won?
1: We put it to the listeners, we polled them, we asked you to decide the winner of the Pizza Pizza Paparizza Mimarizza Celebritza at the Mountains of September Madness Final Three Showdown. It was between Mikay Millar and his Quantum Davy meme, Ed Zachary and his The Treehouse Detectives meme, and uh previous champion, Bill Bixby's Oscar with Chiquita Kill Three, and the votes are in, the public has spoken, and the champion of last week's Pizza Pizza Paparitza memorizza Celebritza at the Mountains of September Madness Final Three Showdown is Bill Bixby's Oscar with Chiquita Kill 3 in a blowout win.
0: Yeah, in a blowout. Mike Miller did come in second, continuing his streak of perennially being runner-up. But, man, I was pulling for him. I didn't vote, though. Did you vote? Did you vote in it? I, I purposely did not vote.
1: I did. No, I didn't vote, no. I was thinking, of. I voted in the another announcement we can make we put another poll asking listeners if pizza, pizza, paparizza, a celebritza had a three win limit or not. And I voted in that one for no, because I believe in a meritocracy where the best person wins. And I was in, I was on the right side of history because in a slight lead, the audience voted that we will not have a three term limit on pizza, pizza, paparizza, memorizza, celebritza champions. As it should be.
0: What they did last time I looked, the the three li- three limit was winning. Let me scroll through.
1: Hell no. The people spoke. They were on the right side of history in the end. They made the right decision. And the pizza, pizza, paparizza, mimerizza, celebrizza remains an open competition for a free and fair election for anybody to win from the lowest depths of the underdog to the highest reaches of the most awarded champions whoever has the best meme wins
0: jesus man there are so many i can't even find it there's so many meme posts in the group
1: yeah yeah this one's gonna be this one's gonna be crazy this we have so much shit to cover
0: how many do we have to cover how many is it
1: i it's i can't even count them it's so many it's so fucking many
0: i don't know how we're gonna do this oh my god i'm getting tired just thinking about it hey you fucking idiots what are you what are you doing in here? I heard you do the little I'm Dave Baker thing. Like, isn't your shit over yet? Hillsmer, come on, man. We you, we do the same thing every week. You don't listen to the show? You don't know that the new format is now the pizza, pizza, paparitza, mimaritza, celebrita. Listen, I don't give a
1: fuck about your fucking pizza bullshit or whatever. I don't even know what you just said. All I know is that at 9 p.m. sharp. I have to do my Hillsmurth Pirate Radio Station broadcast, and you guys—you told me that I would have the studio open
0: for my broadcast. You already promised. Andrew, what do you want to do?
1: We're not getting through this in ten minutes. It's—it's it's not going to happen.
0: Fuck. I guess we have to do pizza, pizza, paparita, mima marito, celebrita, special episode.